Hello, my name is Giovanni and this is Social Medicine, my weekly therapy session wherein we delve deep into the issues that are on my mind. For the penultimate episode of the season, I wanted to kickstart a discussion that would serve as a, you know, for a larger discussion that will take place in the season finale. Um, yes, I will be finishing this season off with two more deep dives into the social issues that take place in America. One of such issues is the rise of the technological revolution and the current state of a specific element of said revolution that we seem to be addicted to, that we use every day. I think the advent of the social media age is a really interesting topic to look at, and I think especially drives home the point that technological innovations are a constant in our society, and that technology will continue to build off of itself until it completely and utterly takes over our lives. Think about it. Social media mainly exists because of the introduction of new technologies like smartphones and smart devices, which only exist because of their predecessors, which only exist because of the introduction and evolution of the computer, which was allowed to exist because of the doors that technology before it had opened. Technology is the application of scientific knowledge in practical ways, and innovations in this field typically fit the description of tools as well. As is true of every tool ever invented, technological innovations such as the calculator, computer, phone, automobile were created to make our lives easier by doing what it's pre-technological predecessor had done better but better and faster when we look at social media such as facebook instagram and twitter it really encompasses numerous facets of our lives that have an immense influence over our lives communication news forming and building relationships journaling are all aspects of social media that drive home the point of the social aspects of said media social media has the potential of shaping and controlling our lives if we let it and so many of us let it. So the question then isn't whether we should use social media or whether it is good or bad. We do use social media. So the moral questioning of our decision has no place in this discussion. And the complexity of the media reflects the complexity of its users. So it is both good and bad. The question then becomes what makes it good and what makes it bad? Which is what I will be looking into today. I've read and heard so many arguments for and against social media usage, and I'm still incapable of completely citing for or against its usage as passionately as others do. I don't think I will come out of this episode thinking one way or another. I will be exploring the good of social media and the bad of it, with special attention given to a, a select category, or to select categories such as mental health and journalism. Additionally, I will be also be looking at the ugly side of social media, that which represents the morally reprehensible behavior and ideals of the sickest of our society. So, I guess viewer discretion is advised. Before I move on and talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of social media, I would like to draw attention to this gem from a TED Talk by Bailey Parnell. Social media is neither good nor bad. It's just the most recent tool we're using to do what we've always done. Tell stories and communicate with each other. You wouldn't blame Samsung television for a bad TV show. Twitter doesn't make people write hateful posts. So when we talk about this dark side of social media, what we're really talking about is the dark side of people, that dark side that makes harassers harass, that insecurity that makes you take down a photo you were excited to share, that dark side that looks at a picture of a happy family and wonders why yours doesn't look like that. So as parents, as educators, as friends, as bosses, this dark side is what we need to focus on. And she's right. 
By holding inanimate objects such as guns or intangible social networking sites to the same moral standards as human beings, we are choosing to distance ourselves from the actual problems plaguing society, human beings, and looking for scapegoats and things created to advance society. That would only happen if we make it happen, if we let it happen. Computers won't do shit unless we give them purpose. And we give them purpose not by their creation, but by their usage. And purpose is subjective, of course. There are... But there are values, such as those outlined in the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that I have no problem saying should be universally accepted and that should dictate the purpose for our technological innovations, or at least not have to sacrifice any of these rights for said innovation. Mark Zuckerberg most recent, or most certainly had no intention in having Facebook be a platform welcoming of hate speech, cyberbullying, and politically motivated threats of terrorism, which, as I understand it, he seems to be okay with as long as he continues to make money currently. The point I'm trying to make is that we as individual human beings are what dictates what is good or bad. And we as autonomous sentient beings are the purveyors of what we deem good and bad. I think the examples Parnell gave were on point. I mean, no one is forcing white supremacist cops to make Facebook pages where they conspire to commit mass murder on those who are rightfully calling out the systemic issues that those pigs live in privilege because of. They made the decision to be shitty. It is them who should be called out for the pigs they are. Not a social networking site that works to allow individuals to represent and express themselves and their opinions in conjunction with the global communication of said express opinions directly to friends and loved ones and indirectly to the rest of the world. The freedom of speech afforded to us Americans by the Constitution is not absolute. For better or worse, we have seen numerous Supreme Court rulings that allow for the limitation of free speech under specific circumstances, which I will get to shortly. Now, with the idea in mind that I'm not advocating that social media itself is either good or bad, I want to move on and talk about the good that has occurred through social media. For starters, I want to talk about the effects social media has had on journalism. Now, this is a double-edged sword, I'll admit, as the immediacy in which news stories seem to be pushed out allows for mistakes in research and reporting to fly by the system and to stop them. So we do have what is now the common pejorative of fake news, and I will get to that. But right now, I want to focus on the good, and fake news isn't good. What is good is the majority of reporting that is shared out through social media and allows more people to keep in touch with current events. News articles are becoming shorter as to be read in completion before our fleeting attention spans get us to click away. The ability to share or retweet things we see so as to inform our friends and loved ones is built into these social networks, living up to their names. And with television becoming a dying medium, older people are now becoming exposed to information that is purposely being left out of the coverage they see on Fox News, for example, whether through their quote-unquote woke younger family members or by the liberal elites they are so quick to revoke their support of upon finding out the harsh news that they care about black people, or at least pretend to. Information is reaching more people, and the correction of any false information that is spread now occurs faster than ever. No longer do you need to wait hours, if not days, for your talking heads to correct an element of a news story they got wrong, as if they did that in the first place. With information traveling at the speed of light, and with the wide reach of social networking sites, journalism is changing for the worse in some ways, but for the better in others. Oh man, how, social media has changed journalism in a lot of ways, I think. And I see it both in, in both the good and the bad. We don't have a sort of broadcast publishing model anymore, uh, which is lovely because it allows a direct connection. 
I think that there is, um, uh, for me, um, a lot of excitement about um, reaching a wider audience because there are some people that are only coming to us in the digital space. Facebook itself is having an outsized impact right now on the practice of journalism and the business of journalism. It's actually just like the reality of traffic flow on the internet now is if something doesn't succeed on Facebook, it does not succeed at all. Twitter is important in terms of setting the agenda and the conversation, but Facebook is where Facebook is where everyone really is actually discussing and sharing that information. I have always been a champion for old media flinging open its doors and allowing citizens to participate. I mean, I got into public radio very early on uh, because of this idea that it was supposed to belong to all of us. To me, there, there's really not old and new media. There's just, there's just how quickly are you taking what's good from the past and kind of adding new ideas to it. But I think what old media can learn from new media is the ability to move quicker, to bring more voices into the conversation, to really create an environment that you previously could only uh, create when you were able to convene people together. New media has professionalized, so it looks a lot more like old media. Old media has hired a bunch of like uh, bloggy types and webby types. So increasingly, it's just sort of all digital media. Um, and the line between those two things is just, you know, uh, it's like uh, disappearing. That can be thrilling, it can be frightening. You know, the consumer has a lot more responsibility and the consumer then needs to figure out who to trust. Uh, I mean, that's the key. Like, who do you trust? Social media journalism mostly removes the politically biased talking heads from the reporting, and any and all biases can and will be challenged by commenters under these posts, which you may then choose to explore or not. Still on the topic of journalism, but from a different angle, I want to talk about the social good that social media has birthed, this social media good works in tandem with another technological innovation, the phone. A common headline thanks to these two innovations is racist rant caught on camera. And it doesn't necessarily have to be explicitly uh, racist incidents. There are incidents of people questioning and preventing black tenants from entering their apartment complex or racially profiling against people of color or even incidents where a white woman abuses her privilege and threatens to call the police on a black man knowing full well how ugly that could turn out for him just for simply asking her to put the dog that she likes to choke on video on a leash. Racism is not on the rise because of social media. Our knowledge of racism is on the rise because of social media. I always look at things in terms of uh, relationships. So when I think about race relations in this country now, there's a thing that happens before things are cleaned up. There is a darkness before the dawn that is, is always difficult, you know? Oh, thank, yeah, thank you, thank you. You know? So now... So, you know, when I, when I, hear, people, when I hear people say it's worse than it's ever been, I really, I, I really I disagree completely. You know, it's, it's clearly not worse than it was in the 60s, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> And it's, it's uh, certainly not as bad as it was in the 1860s, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. so I, I, I So sort of like a doctor has to go, uh, like, open the abscess as, to yeah, drain you the know, wound, you got to see what's going on? We are talking about race in this country more clearly and openly than we have almost ever in the history of this country. It's, at, it's on the table, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know.
Because we, so, we have a history of sort of ignoring problems ignoring until it. you can't anymore. Yeah, I, I think ra racism is, is not getting worse, it's getting filmed. You know, uh, you know, so, you know, so I, I think, I think that... The, re the revolution may not be televised, be, yeah. but it's being tweeted It's being least. tweeted yeah. for sure. Because of videos like these and because of the quick spread of information through social media, we were able to have more meaningful discussions when it comes to this and every issue plaguing the country. And we have a deeper understanding of what racism really looks like. We are now able to put a face to the name and boy are there many faces of racism. The result of this is a lesser form of what is now being referred to as cancel culture and a more effective form at that. Whereas cancel culture mainly focuses on celebrities who might have said or done something offensive in the past, this less intense but more effective form, which I would refer to as simply exposing, focuses on everyday shitheads doing and saying ugly shit now. Ultimately, cancel culture is a waste of time in my opinion, as celebrities have that social and financial security that will get them out of trouble and will eventually fall in people's good graces again. And even if they don't, they have the financial capital to live the rest of their lives free of trouble. When we expose everyday bigots, we are allowing real and sudden change to occur. Whether it's someone being caught on tape beating the shit out of an innocent person, or someone repeatedly hurling racial slurs at a couple doing nothing but living, or a police officer pushing his knee on the back of someone's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, there will be consequences. Not necessarily consequences that we should be celebrating, but consequences that will allow us to breathe a sigh of relief in knowing that these people are being punished, whether legally, socially, or financially. We can celebrate once the system is dismantled and we live in a truly equitable society. Now, some people might take this and refer to it as a bad quality of social media. They might argue that being exposed to so much ugliness does no good, but actually perpetuates said ugliness by spreading the emotional pain that was originally begot. Although I don't agree with this line of thinking, I do think it important to talk about it. So let's talk about it. There's a commonly known correla correlation between heavy social media usage and poor mental health. A lot of the rhetoric backing this up has to do with the glamorization of ourselves and our lives through social media that has people feeling resentful of the fact that they aren't as happy as you seem to be. Or It makes sense that people who use social media for hours every day would be more likely to suffer from depression or anxiety then, but what about other ways in which social media is toxic? Well, the aforementioned cancel culture has people anxious and worried that they would be the next to be canceled by their friends and family, which I personally think is silly. If you're scared to post things on social media because you think you'll be socially reprimanded by the public, then you have no reason to blame social media or the toxic effort effects of it. You are just a shitty person who's starting to see what karma looks like thanks to social media. So for people thinking that the recording of the people who are being racist and acting on their outdated belief systems and the subsequent punishment of said person because of said actions, whether it's them being fired, losing a scholarship, whatever, is a bad thing, then there is reason to believe that you are also one of those racists. You see, I've been witness to this side of social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or Reddit. People have this backward notion that all intolerance should be viewed as the same when that is simply not the case. Some people argue for the tolerance of the intolerant, such as former ACLU president Nadine Strawson. Many people have contended that there is a paradox of why should we tolerate intolerant ideas? And the answer is that we have to engage in exploration and analysis of all ideas if we are going to honestly and sincerely 
reach our own conclusion as to which ideas we believe to be correct and which ideas we believe other people should adopt. Well, I do agree that we have to be willing to explore different ideas and challenge our own in order to better decide what it is we believe we value. We do not, however, have to do any sort of deep exploration of ideas that are universally thought of as morally disgusting, as the societal exploration of such ideas as white supremacy and sexism has occurred by our predecessors. That's what history education is for. That's where the exploration of such intolerant ideas should take place. Any exploration outside of learning history is to advocate for the inclusion of bigotry in our moral questioning when the time for questioning is over, and the time for condemnation of bigotry is long overdue. British philosopher Karl Popper brings up the idea of there being a paradox of intolerance in his work The Open Society and Its Enemies, where he advocates for an open society, a dynamic liberal democracy marked by a never-ending pursuit of knowledge, a pluralistic view of culture and religion, and a critical attitude towards the traditional. He writes, Unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. If we extend unlimited tolerance even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed, and tolerance with them. In this formulation, I do not imply, for instance, that we should always suppress the utterance of intolerant philosophies as long as we can counter them by rational argument and keep them in check by public opinion. Suppression would certainly be most unwise. But we should claim the right to suppress them, if necessary, even by force. For it may easily turn out that they are not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument, but begin by denouncing all argument. They may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument, because it is deceptive, and teach them to answer arguments by the use of their fists or pistols. We should therefore claim, in the name of tolerance, the right not to tolerate the intolerant. There is no room in a progressive society for tolerance towards the intolerant. Every single bit of ugliness in this world, whether current or historical, is due to the rise of intolerance in the political sphere. Intolerance is an American value, and to claim otherwise is to revise history. All this to say that I have no sympathy for those who were caught on camera showing their true colors and being subsequently punished for it. Amy Cooper deserved to lose her job, at the very minimum, for doing something that could amount to attempted murder by the police. There is nothing bad about bigots reaping the consequences of their expressed bigotry. Now, I do think social media has allowed for a lot more than the expression of bigotry, the spread of misinformation and straight-up lies to rile up a crowd of gullible buffoons is ever-increasing. I mentioned before that the social media age has allowed for evil people to blacken the hearts of others by spreading misinformation that they pass off as news. Being able to receive the news in an instant through social media is an incredibly useful benefit, but only when that news is fact-checked and upheld with actual journalistic integrity. But when it is punished or pushed, sorry, by those with a, an agenda to indoctrinate the most vulnerable, that's when it becomes a problem. As the coronavirus spreads around the world, so too has misinformation about the disease. The Washington Post obtained a new U.S. report. It says millions of false tweets have peddled conspiracy theories about coronavirus in other countries. The report did not include the United States, but found some of the misinformation may have been coordinated. For more on this, let's bring in Dan Peterson. He's a senior producer at CNET. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for being with us. So what can you tell us about this 
perceived misinformation? Has it been confirmed that there's been a lot of in misinformation about the coronavirus, or are investigators just saying it seems like it at this point? No, Tanya, there is a report by the Global Engagement Center. This is a part of the State Department that analyzed close to 30 million tweets and found that there were at least 2 million tweets from outside of the United States peddling disinformation. This ranged in uh, content from uh, posts that claimed the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation had somehow created this virus too. This was a construct of the liberal media elite and that this uh, virus would disappear just as soon as uh, the media was finished talking about it. There is a significant amount of disinformation and misleading content on social media ranging from Twitter, Facebook and YouTube about the virus itself. Basic facts and the basic science. Peddling of conspiracy theories is a staple of social media, so much so that it has transcended into memehood. But it is a very real issue that has the potential of resulting in people losing their lives. A recent study done by King's College London and published in the journal Psychological Medicine shows a direct link between heavy social media usage and the belief of coronavirus conspiracy theories, which in turn led to people breaking lockdown rules and social distancing guidelines. This is the problem with unlimited free speech. People like to fall back on the First Amendment to the Constitution as a defense for them saying whatever the fuck they want to say, but refuse to take responsibility or be accountable of any of the consequences that may result in them practicing the right to free speech. And social media has only exacerbated the problem. Just as social networking sites are capable of connecting millions of people around the world with distant friends and families and allow them to develop uh, relationships with strangers, which is generally seen as a social good, they also are almost open spaces that give individuals the, sh the opportunity to share their thoughts about almost as instantly as they are having them bypassing any form of critical thinking or consideration for the consequences that can more easily occur in real-world interactions. Freedom of speech is not absolute, like I said before, whether we like it or not. Numerous Supreme Court cases have ruled as such with different types of speech. For speech that looks to incite or advocate violence, cases such as Schenck v. U.S., Gitlow v. New York, and Bradenburg v. Ohio limit Americans' protected free speech with varying levels of severity, depending on the case. With some, like Shank defending the limitation of free speech if it presents a clear and present danger such as yelling fire in a packed movie theater. Others, like Gitlow, essentially expanded the rights to free speech to the government, which would punish speech that threatens its basic existence because of the national uh, security implications. Then we have cases like New York Times versus Sullivan, wherein the Supreme Court ruled that some libelous speech is protected by the First Amendment if there was no actual malice when writing it. That is, it must be proven that whomever made the statement did so with the knowledge of or disregard of its falsity. Meaning the falsity of a statement is not enough for the person making said statement to be liable for libel. Additionally, there is the moral stance, which doesn't always align with the legal one. If a man is berating a black man for no reason other than his hatred for racial minorities, and if the black man then proceeds to beat the shit out of the racist, that man could then be charged with assault. Now, arguments will be made over the use of violence to correct bigotry, but I think that we can all agree that, if anything, the man's emotional reaction to a perceived danger is justified, regardless of what you think about his physical reaction. The fact that people of power can go on social media and generalize Black Lives Matter protesters by calling them thugs and threatening to order mass murder uh, emboldens those who already have a racially charged and politically motivated disdain towards those they see as their enemies. There is no room for civil discourse in social media. It instead continues to act as an echo chamber for both liberals and conservatives who choose to hear opinions that they know they will agree with. The social media age has morphed us into social cowards 
transforming genuine real world social skills into synthetic social skills that when we that when used outside of the internet make us look like the incapable beings that we are. Our culture is a narcissistic, self-centered, and apathetic one that has the has a heightened sense of self in large part due to the social media we are addicted to. We are bored and generally unhappy with the monotony of working in order to feel a sense of importance, a sense of synthetic happiness, so we turn to a new kind of currency, one that continually validates our decisions to post a new picture, to like someone else's picture, until we get into the habit of doing this as many times as we can throughout the day, which eventually leads us down a rabbit hole of celebrity news. You see, it is through social media that we are able to connect with our favorite celebrities in a way never before seen. We can now know their every move and see the things that they sh- that they share and find funny or important. We match our values with theirs until we find out that they're, what their actual value system is, whether it be political, religious, whatever. And we find out that it does not actually match with ours. We don't take this very well, so we start to search for self-validation. This person who I held in high regard doesn't agree with me on this, but I'm still right, right? So we search for stuff that tells us how right we are. We fall, do- we fall down another rabbit hole of biased news that is meant to further divide us and pit us against each other, which is exactly what we are looking for because we are incapable of looking at the world in the lens other than us versus them. We fall so far in that everything that we hear that is different than what we are used to hearing is just straight up wrong. By this point, we have become so self-centered that we need the world to see things the way we do, and when it doesn't, we resort to violence. We found community, a sense of belonging with these, with those who agree with us, and feel a need to protect them and our values, whatever the cost. So we commit acts of violence that result in, a, in the deaths of innocents, all because we are incapable of empathizing. This is, of course, a hyperbolized hypothetical scenario. Most of us just suffer from mental illness or poor mental health because of our very human response to the prospect of social media. But I can't help but think of everyone whose extremist views were not only validated, but were allowed to evolve to the point where violence is the only route to take for them. We are talking about the ugly side of social media, that which allows hatred and bigotry to grow and spread. As an example, Antonia Ward's article titled, ISIS's use of social media still poses a threat to stability in the Middle East and Africa, touches on the use of social media by terrorist organizations to attract followers. In it, she writes, ISIS's, uh, ISIS's strategic use of social media demonstrate the resourcefulness of the terrorist insurgent organization, which mobilized an estimated 40,000 foreign nationals from 110 countries to join the group. Increasing ac- internet access in both Africa and the Middle East means that ISIS has also has a new pool of potential supporters who, through social media, could be recruited to join its effort to regain control of lost territory. 40,000 people were radicalized through social media like Facebook and Twitter. And this isn't a solely international problem. Domestic terrorist groups like the KKK and the Boogaloos are finding solace in social media, being able to reach members across the nation and organize any planned attack. Now, we also can't forget about the pedophilia that is allowed to flourish on social media. A stunning idea from an organization trying to fight predators who target children. Take a look at this little girl. Look closely at her face. In the span of just 10 weeks, she has helped identify more than 200 suspects right here in the United States because there's something about her that they failed to guess. Here's ABC's Cecilia Vega to tell us. My name is Sweetie. I'm 10 years old. This little girl from the Philippines single-handedly helped identify 1,000 predators from around the world. Every day, I have to sit 
in front of the webcam. The predators flocked, sometimes hundreds at a time, but they had no idea that what they were seeing was completely fake. But what they don't know, I'm not real. I'm a computer model made piece by piece to track down this man who do this. She is a virtual girl created by a Dutch children's rights group trying to crack this growing form of child exploitation, where men, mostly from wealthy countries, pay to have webcam sex with poor children. This was a high-tech trap. As the predators gave Sweetie their names, investigators tracked down their addresses and photos and handed them over to Interpol. But Interpol says criminal investigations like these should be done by police. In all of the 1,000 alleged pedophiles this group identified, it says 245 of them are from the U.S. Nothing is being done about the source of the problem. This phenomenon will only increase even further. The FBI estimates more than half a million pedophiles are online every day. To catch them, federal investigators have set up fake ads on websites. They've even created an app. It is a virtual problem that spans the globe. My name is Sweetie. But now, there may be a real solution. Cecilia Vega, ABC News, Los Angeles. A few months ago, I started hearing about a term I have never heard before. And it being the internet, I wasn't surprised. There's new words and phrases um, coming out every day. The new term I learned was MAP, M-A-P, which I found out is an acronym that stands for Minor Attracted Person. In other words, a pedophile. Apparently, these people started feeling bold and would post about being proud to be a pedophile and defending their attraction to children by claiming it's a sexual orientation, just like it is to be gay or bi. This, of course, works to damage the already shaky view of the LGBT community that some people may have, especially more ignorant people. But even worse, this these people are trying to normalize pedophilia. And it is working because every day I see more shit about someone being a map or a map ally. In fact, I, I'm going to take you through a Twitter account I found. This person's name is Ophelia, and her at is DaxiNoxGPMS, D-A-X-I-N-O-X-G-P-M-S. Uh, her bio reads, map ally, but kids still can't consent. Um, and a scroll through her feed just fills me with cringe and makes me incredibly uncomfortable. And this is just one person, right? Knowing there's thousands of them. Additionally, this person is also a zoophile or a zoophile ally, which is people who fuck or want to fuck animals. She just retweets map, map positivity shit, and she even tweeted this yesterday. Uh, being a map is valid. Map phobia is not allowed here. Thank you. And right under that is a retweet of a post saying zoosexuals are valid individuals. Animals are valid individuals. Love is love. Now, we should all have a problem with the rhetoric being used, you know, rhetoric that is normally used for the LGBT community. Um, but yeah, everything about this is, is garbage. I don't want to go any further with this. <laughs> I just wanted to bring it up. My personal opinion is that if these people have never actually acted on their quote-unquote attraction, that's great, but they still need help. There's nothing wrong with you. Or there's something wrong with you, sorry, if you are attracted to kids or animals. I'll say that again. There's something wrong with you if you are attracted to kids or animals, which I guess makes me an intolerant person, as I mentioned earlier. Before I end this episode, I want to talk about another ugly side of social media. One of the best and worst things of social media is the enhancement of our freedom of speech. I do value freedom of speech immensely, and it is probably the constitutional freedom I value the most. 
being able to express my opinions and calling our president a garbage human being is something I will never take for granted. But I understand that with this freedom, it, as is true of every one of our constitutional rights, there comes great responsibility. Responsibility that a lot of us shirk because we are selfish beings who place more value on a 233-year-old document than our fellow human beings, which is expected in a Christian nation. But we can't be careless with what we say. And I know how much easier social media has made it to say whatever we want. But we must still think before we type, just as we do before we speak, or we should. Children have taken their lives for being cyberbullied. And I can't even imagine what bullied kids are going through right now that they are always online due to the coronavirus. Bullying is one thing. By physically bullying, you are putting yourself at risk to be apprehended. But the consequences of cyberbullying are much more silent, less immediate. Kids kill themselves over this stuff, which is no surprise. People like Tyler Clementi, who took his life in 2010 after his roommate outed him as gay by secretly recording and live-streaming his encounter with another man and promoting it on Twitter. I love social media. I use it every day. I get to learn a bunch of new stuff through Reddit, message and keep up with friends through Facebook, see what my friends are up to through the pictures they post on Instagram, and just find all kinds of entertainment on YouTube. But people like Tyler Clementi got to see the ugly side of social media, spurred on by the ugliness in people's hearts. Again, I must drive the point that social media itself is neither good nor bad. It all depends on how we use it that dictates and reflects how good or bad we are. Right now, a lot of people are using social media for social good. Sharing information about the Black Lives Matter movement and ways to support the movement. We are using it for good, keeping ourselves uh, and each other informed. Sharing ways to help by signing petitions and donating. Showing our support for a cause that, after everything that's being brought to light should not be controversial and even exposing those with evil in their hearts who abuse their power and privilege to bring harm to others. And there are those on social media who use its power to cause further harm, to plan out attacks on modern-day civil rights leaders, urging for a race war to occur and showing support and solidarity to the murdering pigs we should all be against. Lately, for better or worse, social media has been killing me emotionally. Seeing all the hatred and intolerance is sometimes too much to handle, but it is important to never look away, to see what it is that we need to change. And I, knowing that this breed of hatred and this type of intolerance is lashing onto me and growing inside of my own heart is something I can't help but notice. Right now I'm trying to make this time or take this time to think and grow and see if I come out better on the other side. If we come out better, I can only hope and pray we do for humanity's sake. I will leave you all with something that Tyler Clementi's mom, Jane Clementi, had said. In this digital world, we need to teach our youngsters that their actions have consequences, that their words have real power to hurt or to help. They must be encouraged to choose to build people up and not tear them down. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.